Hello, dear friends, and welcome to The Natural High, which is, of course, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week, I speak to Lorraine McGuire, who is, among other things, a rapid transformational therapist. Like so many highly successful people, she used the adversity in her life as a springboard to make the requisite changes, not only to improve her own outlook and circumstances, but to help others through their own issues, addictions and the obstacles to their happiness, fulfilment and to reaching their potential. She has the sort of self-awareness and self-honesty that I continue to aspire to and all I can say is that I am already resolved to doing a session with her in order to continue my awareness journey and to relieve some of the pressure points in my own life. The stuff that she talks about during this interview feels genuinely relevant because it's about human beings, the human condition, about our foibles, our common obstacles and challenges, and the adversity which can sometimes hold us back in our lives. This interview gave me genuine food for thought about my own life, and I had a blast chatting with Lorraine because she is a wonderful human. I'm actively trying to reduce my waffle at the start of these podcasts because my guests always do a way better job of describing their work. Suffice to say, you can find her and reach out to her and perhaps even work with her by going to LorraineMaguire.com, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-M-A-G-U-I-R-E.com or by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Lorraine Maguire. And on that page, you'll find all the links to the great work and therapy that she's doing. As ever, if you enjoy what you're listening to, then please feel free to leave a review for The Natural High on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. (sighs) The Natural High. You're over in New Zealand, aren't you? I am in New Zealand, yes. Whereabouts in America are you? I'm on the West Coast in California. Oh, lovely. I mean, I could say the same thing to you. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've just yeah, I've just rushed in. It was a beautiful sunny day out there. Um, so you're sort of in the in the summer now, right? Yeah, yeah, we're in the height of our summer and it's wonderful. Oh my goodness. I want you to tell me something about New Zealand because uh, I met my beloved wife in Australia in 2010 oh, and nice. we've, we've both always wanted to go to New Zealand. It seems to me like the sort of understated cool cousin to Australia. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're, we're way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something about New Zealand. Oh, it's just so beautiful. I think I love just love the diverse, you know, like where I am in Auckland, I've got the city. So I've got Auckland City, but then I've got two coasts. I've got the East Coast beaches that I, I just swam at an East Coast beach this morning. Um, and then the West Coast beach um is like the surf beach so you know so I can you know surf on one side of the coast and it's like literally where I am I'm probably it's probably about 40 minutes either way so I'm kind of like I've got the best of both worlds so it's really good and then you've got like down set the South Island which is like mountains and you know can like you know ski ranges and things like that which isn't really my forte but my partner's going to get me to ski one day so yeah and I think it's just um yeah like because we're so far away you know like there's still 
you know, a smaller population. So, I mean, everyone here thinks the traffic's bad and things like that. But, well, if you compared it to America or I lived in London for a while, it's it's nothing. Yeah, know? right. Um, okay, so you yeah. lived in London. How how diverse does New Zealand feel compared to London? That's something, you know, you, you, you're sort of working on cliches when you haven't actually been to a place. And so, and it strikes me, New Zealand is such a long way from everywhere that it might suffer from a sort of lack of cosmopolitanism in some ways. Oh, no, like we are so diverse. Yeah, like it's so multicultural, especially in Auckland. Um, and I think that's what I love. And I did I did actually notice that when I came back from London, uh, it was 2005, that, yeah, there was a lot, there is a lot more cultural diversity. I mean, we have so many cultural events, you know, Diwali is celebrated, you know, then you've got the Pacific Island events that we do. You've got a lot of, you know, there's a massive expat community. I mean, I was born in Blackpool. I know, yeah. I've in been listening. <laughs> it seems to me like you've done more podcasts than me. I've been listening to your podcast over the last few days, and the the internet is replete with your podcast, and you speak so well. And I'm hoping to keep this interview fresh for you because I know we're going to be covering some of the same ground. But what, what happened? How did it come about that you moved over to New Zealand from from Blackpool? Yeah. So my dad's. Let me get this right. My dad's dad was over here. And my dad's mum passed away when he was young. So it was my dad's dad was here and his parents. So my grandparents, my great grandparents, because they were my dad's grandparents. So they were they were writing to, to mum and dad saying, you know, it's beautiful over here, you know, come over here, you know, come and come and live in New Zealand. And I believe that my parents had booked to come out here and then they got pregnant with my brother. And so, yeah, I'm thinking I'm getting this right. They got pregnant with my brother and then they had me and then they came out when I was nine months old. So we, you know, we eventually immigrated out here. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just, I think my, my, my nana, I call her my nana, my nana just was writing all the time saying how amazing it was and how, you know, what a wonderful lifestyle it was and how relaxed and, you know, the weather was so much better. And yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we came back here. My mum did get homesick when I was about nine, I think. And we moved back to the UK. Uh, but I think it was about nine months before we turned around and came back here again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... I'm going to I'm going to go back to the start of the chronology, but I'm going to jump around um, just because of what you've already said. You, you spent some time in the UK in 2005. What were you doing there? Yeah, so in 1998, I left New Zealand. I was 21, and I went to the UK. I think really I was doing my OE, but because I had a British passport, I could stay longer than two years. So I ended up staying seven years. So I was kind of like, I'm going to go for a year or two, and I'll be back. And then seven years later. Uh, but I think also I was trying to escape the alcohol, um, you know, the alcoholism and thinking if I, if I, it's New Zealand and, you know, or, or whatever I was thinking, I actually don't really even know, but I knew that I was embarrassed about some of my alcoholic behavior. And then I went to the UK and it didn't change, but. Um... <laughs> yeah, there's not much else to do in the UK except drink. <laughs> you went to the so... wrong place there. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I just carried it on for a few years before I got sober, but um yeah, I literally was just, you know, this is the key, you know, Kiwis are huge for doing over overseas experience, you know, um, we, you know, maybe it's because we're so far away that we all decide we want to go and see the world. Um, and so, yeah, I literally was like, I, I, I seriously, honestly believed I was going to be like a year to two years. And it was seven years that I was yeah, living mainly in, in, in London and in and around London. I moved around different parts of London, but um, 
yeah and then I did trips from London but yeah I I mean I loved it I just oh, I think it's a great biggest... place all jokes aside it is a great city isn't oh, it uh, fabulous and especially at that age, 21, like the social scene in London is fantastic. And just the, the, the layers and the diversity and it's just such a cultural melting pot, as you've already explained, and just so much going on. I mean, I lived there for 15, 16 years. I eventually got sick of it, but well, I can't imagine a city that would hold my attention for longer than London did. No, no. And I think what was so great was, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I miss the the different languages. I miss English. I love hearing your English accent because I miss English accents. I mean, I grew up with my parents from Blackpool, so they've still got their English accents, even after being here for like 44 years almost. And, um, and my partner's got an English accent, but I think I'm attracted to English accents, you know, and I, and I, I used to love sitting in a, in a, in a, in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, just listening to like Wales, you know, the, the, the accents are so diverse, like just down the road and the, the accent's completely different. Like, yeah, like New Zealand, we sound like New Zealanders down South, you're a bit stronger in your Kiwi accent, but I just loved the the different accents and sitting there and, and just being like, wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the diversity of, of London was, was amazing. And like you say, when I arrived there at 21, I was, I thought I was quite worldly, but I was so naive, you know, and I ended in this house where there was so much partying going on. It just, you know, it literally blew my head off, you know, like I went from, you know, small, you know, like small city, you know, Auckland city, you know, where I'd go clubbing, but it was, nothing compared to the to the massive clubs and things that I went to in London that just like I'd be like how many people are in here you know um it was completely different just bizarre random stuff that happens every weekend and you end up in some crazy place it's fantastic in itself though isn't it when you look at it retrospectively and you're not right in the in the the thick of things it's nice to look back and chuckle at that sort of time of your life because you know like the adversity can often be the springboard for your success and for your future strength can't it Oh, absolutely. I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't gone through everything that I've gone through. Oh, my God. I want to hear your story because you you are basically the perfect person for the natural high. Because what I like <laughs> to do is speak to people who have suffered adversity and then changed their life, you know, and, and, and yeah. sort of changed it for the better. And you are just a classic case because it seems to me like <laughs> yeah. you had lots of common demons that we all have in our lives. But you really sort of got beyond that and became somebody who not only succeeded in your own life, but went on to help so many others. Yes. Yeah. And it was funny. I was just talking to a lady. I've just come from a, from a, a you know, a, a 12 step meeting and I was talking to her about, you know, some, something in social media. And I was saying that some of the people in social media that I was, you know, in these groups, they didn't want help. They wanted to stay in their sickness. So I stopped, you know, but one of the groups I actually got kicked out of because I was, I was self-promoting or something, but I was actually being honest, but I don't think people realized like, Yes, I have done the alcoholism. Yes, I've done the drugs. Yes, I've done the smoking. Yes, I've done the overeating. Yes, I've done the excess weight. Yes, I've done the anxiety and panic, you know, and it sounds like sometimes like you can't have had all of those things. And I'm like, yes, I have. But that puts me in such a good position to help other people. Because, you know, so many, I mean, I just had a call from a client query the other day and I just started telling some of the drinking, drugging stories and you could audibly hear him just relax and go, oh, this person knows because they've been there. It's not someone who's going to therapize me and say all these things to me who doesn't actually know what it's like. Um, you know, it's like speaking the same language. And, you know, I'm very open about the things that I've done and achieved and overcome. 
because I believe that's my strength today. It's not something I need to, I used to be so embarrassed and I don't tell anyone you're an Alcoholics Anonymous or don't tell anyone that you've got, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And now I'm just like, I'm like, here I am. This is, this is who I am. I've done all those things. I'm not doing it today. But isn't that, I just love that honesty. And honestly, the people that I, I know who have had addiction in their lives, they tend to be some, and, and who have come through that, they tend to be some of the most brute, beautifully and brutally honest people I know they are completely happy to tell you about the depths of their depravity and I just think that's wonderful because it not only is it interesting in itself it's fascinating but it also I just like honesty yeah instead of like trying to sugarcoat the way you are and like paint yourself as this incredible person that's never had any kind of adversity you know (laughs) exactly I want the warts at all (laughs) yes I know um but yeah I think I think that one of those where I learned to be this kind of brutally honest because some people um do not like it you know some people back away from it um because either they're experiencing it themselves or they triggers them or they're confronted by it or it's or it's too much I did have one friend say to me can you can you not tell me those stories because they're making me uncomfortable once you know and um I don't know whether she'd been experiencing those things, but, you know, it's like, because people don't tend, like you don't go to the bar and start telling your your war stories, you know, but I learned that in the 12 step recovery meetings, we do, we just share it. And then it becomes, it's become a part of who I am. So, you know, I'll be at swimming telling some kind of story and you can see people looking at me like, that's an appropriate story to be telling here, Lorraine. But I always believe that whenever I share something, because sometimes I do, I go, oh, oversharing, Lorraine, don't, you know, that was, that was an appropriate time to share the story. I always believe somebody there needed to hear it. And I might never know who that person was, but somebody might have been listening to that and gone, oh, I'm not alone because I've felt those things or experienced those things totally. or i those troubles. I would you have know, thought they... that would be one of the big parts of your sort of, you know, of, of the way that you work to say to people, look, I have been in your position and way worse. And it's part of that. That is what resonates with a lot of people who are going through addiction and, and struggling in their life, surely. Absolutely. I think it's when I'm in like a non, you know, like when you're just hanging out with mates or you're, you know, you're all getting changed in the swim, swim change rooms or something. And then all of a sudden I'll tell some story or something's triggered something for me. And some of the, you know, especially maybe some of the, you know, older ladies will be like, oh, um, but I, I do. I just think sometimes these things just pop out of my mouth and I'm, and I think, well, somebody must've needed to hear it. And they might not come up to me and say, oh, thank you. But that just might've given them some relief. Cause I remember once being in a, in a 12 step meeting and I was really hanging on and I, I was desperate. I wanted a drink. I felt terrible. And everyone in this meeting was saying how wonderful their lives was. And it was a women's meeting. So I was uncomfortable with women at the time. And they'd talk about handbags and boys and things at the beginning of the meeting and all girly things. And I'd feel like- No wonder oh, you wanted a drink. I just wanted to be a boy <laughs> at that point. You know, like, I, you know, like I'm quite um, action oriented. And so it was a challenge for me even to be there. And so I, I sat there and I didn't share. I didn't open my mouth. And we all used to go for coffee and dinner afterwards. And so I went and I started sharing. And I think I might've been crying saying, oh, it was really hard. And then this other girl said, oh my God, yeah, I felt the same too. And then this other girl and this one woman, I never forget it. She said, if one of you had shared how you were struggling in that meeting, you would have helped the other two. But you all kept quiet and you don't know who else was in that meeting who needed to hear that life isn't always beautiful, happy, sober. 
you know, that life is hard when you're first getting sober, that it's a struggle. And I always remember that woman. I don't remember her name, but I just remember that conversation. And I just, I always remembered that. And I thought sometimes when I, you know, like my ego will be like, oh, you're 20 years sober. Don't, you can't say you're having a hard time or anything like that. And then I go, yeah, but we're human too. You know, we're not, we don't get to this place where everything's like, oh, I've made it. I'm never going to have a, another problem ever again, you know, which I would love to get to, but I, I, I don't believe that's possible. I, um, I was going to ask you about ego straight away after that because of what you're talking about. I thought how much of it is to do with pride that we don't want to talk mm. about the, the darker sides of ourselves. You know, we don't want to project that onto other people. We want to present ourselves as, you know, fully, fully baked and, you know, a, a stand-up, reliable person with nothing bad going on. That's exactly right. And that's probably been one of the biggest challenges transforming into becoming a therapist because aren't you supposed to be fully fixed and fully healed as a therapist? And, and I've found one of my biggest strengths is to say to a client, like I could say to a client, oh, this is just what happened to me yesterday, but this is how I dealt with it. And you might want to try that, you know, or this is what I'm going through, you know, like, um, but these are the tools that I've got that are going to help me through it. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to have relationship problems, issues, financial situations, all sorts of things are going to come up. There's, you know, um, I'm never not going to have an argument with anyone ever again because I'm in therapy or I've, you know, I've, I've got these tools and things that can help me. Absolutely. It's a daily practice, right? Happiness. Yeah. It's absolutely. not something like 20, 20 years ago, you had all these issues and you don't have them anymore. It's something that you have just managed to succeed and you've challenged yourself and you, you, you've come out the other end, but it's a daily practice. Yeah. It's I, like I say, I'm a work in progress. You know, like I've, I, there's some things that I have like overcome 100%. I have no problem with alcohol. I could be around alcohol. I don't want it. I, there's not any part of me that even an inkling of like, oh, maybe one day. No, nothing. It's gone. It's completely out of my life. It's no longer an issue. Same with smoking, you know, same with drugs. There's other things, feelings, emotions, relationships that still bring challenges that I need to work on. You know, even over this Christmas period, I got a little bit out of my, you know, mental health routine. I wasn't doing my readings that I read regular readings and wasn't meditating as often and even exercise. And I noticed that, whoa, I, I need that routine. That's what keeps me in a balanced place so that I can go out into the world and feel good. So there's another specific question I had for you. How important is routine in your life in terms of, you know, maintaining your happiness and sense of contentment and fulfillment? Yeah, is it really yeah. important? If you drop off from your from a couple of little things here and there, do you find yourself sort of slipping back into a less sort of fulfilled and harmonious existence? I can let go of a couple of things, but it's when it, there's a buildup of more. So I've got, I'm one of my nicknames years ago was Lorainal because I can be quite anal. And when my partner first met me years ago, he, he knew the robot Lorraine because I was, you know, he calls me now a robot with feelings because I've still got the robotic kind of Excel spreadsheet planning. You okay. know, I was a You're organized. I was a, yeah, I was an organized project manager. So I've still got those skills, but I didn't have the feelings attached to it. Now I'm like, whoa, feelings. Oh, yeah, they come and go, don't they? Um, and so I was just very much regimented. Da, 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 da. And so I do. I have a, a spreadsheet, which I call my habit checker. And there's all sorts of things on there, like making the bed, flossing my teeth, you know, like things because I, I, I wasn't um, historically very good at making my bed every day. And so, you know, like things like that, some things get a tick every single day. Other things get ticks like once or twice a week, maybe once a week, sometimes less than some things I've never had ticks on. I just haven't managed to get that habit going yet. 
um, but still there because I'm like, I actually would like that habit. Um, drinking water, tick every day, two liters so, of water. Uh, when you say drinking water, tick every day, do you literally have a spreadsheet of things that you want to do each day? You want to tick yes. off the list. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I have it, I, I was like, oh, I've, I've left it at my partner's, but so I've got like a, it's, you know, like a, a little daily plan now, which I've only just started, which I'm really loving. I got that from another woman that's like, what's my nutrition for the day? What's my exercise? What's my home life? What's my work life? Gratitude. And so I can do that. I start it in the morning. I, I do a little rough plan, but if I don't stick to it, I don't beat myself up anymore. I just go, that's okay. I didn't stick to my plan. You know, like I used to be like, I have to stick to this plan. And if yeah. I don't stick to this plan, I'm going to drink or I'm going to drug or I'm going to eat or, you know, I can be a lot more flexible now. I can go for a few days, but if it, if it compounds and I start to notice, oh, things, I look at this and I go, what am I, what have I not been ticking? What have I not been doing? Um, part of me knows I don't actually need the tick sheet anymore because it's so most a lot of these things are ingrained but another part of me really likes it like the little girl from school with the star chart oh I got a star today you know that's how I feel like a lot of this there's a lot of these apps you can do it online I love printing it off ticking writing in the boxes who did I you know like one of my things when I went from the corporate job to working for myself office of 150 plus people on my floor to me in my house one of the things I said is I have to have face-to-face -face or phone contact with someone and so I notice if I've if I haven't written someone's name in the box for a few days and I haven't had any phone or face-to-face -face contact I need that that's something that I need do you think and we so all do I'll, I do I think connection is so important um, if I don't get enough connection, that's one of the things that I missed over the summer, summer period and with lockdowns and all sorts of things, you know, um, I was like, oh, this week I've just, I've had a walk with two friends. I've swum with a friend. I've swum this morning. I've been to a meeting. I'm like, ah, connection. I feel good. What, 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 what are the single most important, I mean, it's probably hard to give you an exact answer to this, but what are the, some of the most important things that you do for your physical and emotional health every day? Um, so for me, because I'm a hypnotherapist, I like to do my hypnosis recordings. So what are they? You know, so so basically, you know, I believe that all the things that we're experiencing somewhere in our mind, we've created it. We've got a subconscious belief, um, and so the hypno hypnotic recordings rewire your subconscious mind. So so I had the belief, you know, I'm not enough. So for a while, I had a recording that just told me you are enough, you are worthy, you are lovable, you know, so, you know, positive affirmation type recordings, um, you know, but it's you put yourself into hypnosis. Um, I listen to them as I go to sleep. Sometimes I'll listen to one when I wake up in the morning. So I find them really useful. Sometimes I'll listen to one as I'm, it's like listening to a podcast, but it's, it's you know, it's either my, one of my therapists has done it for me or I've made myself one. And it's quite meditative um, in that respect, in that sort of repetitive respect. Yes. Yeah. And so I find them really, really helpful because it's getting through the conscious and into the subconscious. So I might, I fall asleep to them a lot, but I've had some crazy as dreams where my recording's been playing in my dreams. It's quite funny. Um, <laughs> so I think that's really important for me. Um, I don't do daily exercise, but I like to move daily because, you know, sitting at computers and things and doing a lot of online work um, or sitting with a client, I like to move my body um so yeah so for me you know I used to be a couch potato and now if I go a few days without either bouncing on a trampoline swimming doing some dancing kind of, in the dark dancing in the dark exactly <laughs> bring on dancing in the dark we, we're not dancing at the moment because it's what, too light. What, what's the distinction between dancing in the light and dancing in the dark what's the difference is it just a, you have less inhibition because you're in the dark or what's the what's the benefit of it so 
so for me, I don't have much inhibition dancing. I can dance in the light or the dark. I, can I think dance. you're in the minority there. Brilliant. Yeah, I can dance on a stage. You know, like I just love, I love Brilliant. to dance. Brilliant. But for a lot of people, yes, that's, you don't, you can dance. Like, honestly, I, I'm ripping out a routine as if I'm on stage with people watching and you know that no one can see you. And I probably wouldn't do some of the things that I do in the dark. And, you know, as much as I love to dance, there are probably some things I do in the dark that I wouldn't do if people were watching me. Not many, but a few. Um but I think for me, what it is, is when I'm in the dark, all my other senses are switched off. So I'm not distracted by how someone else is dancing. I'm not distracted by someone talking to me. I'm just present. It's like meditation. I'm present in the moment. And what happens to me is I become very mindful of what's going on for me because I'm either really in the music, dancing and really feeling it, singing along if there's words or really getting into the beat and I'm present with the music, or I notice my head is racing. I might be having a argument with someone in my head or thinking about that client that didn't go well or something. And I realize, oh, I'm really distracting myself here. And I can, I can get a sense of what's going on for me. And then I can kind of work through some of those things in the dark, you know, um, sometimes I can just be aware of it and then go, ah, oh, okay, I'm aware of where I'm at. And then just as the, the dancing progresses, I, I tend to let it go. And then the lights come on and I'm like, I feel better. Sounds beautiful. It's something mm. I will definitely give a go. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. I mean, I'm hanging out for March the fourth or fifth or whenever it is that we start back up, you know, like um, it's definitely something I miss. But I will, this week, I just threw on some tunes and danced by myself in my living room for for 30 minutes because I needed to move my body. So I'll do it anyway, um, you know, but it, it is a lot better because in the dark, you've got woohoo, hee hee, woohoo going on. And, you know, like I'm very vocal. I, I woohoo a lot. Um, everyone knows where I am when I'm in the dark. So, um, you know, it's just this release of energy and you're, you're feeling the vibe of everyone around you as well. And it's so uplifting. And I think so many of us are so inhibited i'm sure lots of your clients you're, you're working with their inhibitions a lot of the time right yes uh, and it is something you know I, I like the idea that ultimately there are only two main emotions love and fear and you pretty much can put everything into those when you think about it you know like the fear the sub the subcategory of that is anger and you know yeah. repressed resentment and all these sorts of things but you know like yeah you're sort of working with those things with inhibitions aren't, aren't you a lot of the time like you've you're dealing with people with a lot of fear and you're trying to bring the love back into their life Exactly. And one of the things that we do, you know, one of the things I do in a session is do what there's a technique called loving parent, you know, where you become your own loving parent and you, you might have a me you might have a memory of yourself as five and, you know, instead of going, oh, when I was five, this happened and that happened. And it's like, love that five-year-old. What did that five-year-old need to hear? You know, like if I think of um, one of the clients this week, she, she was, um, she'd done a, an assignment and nobody recognized, you know, the assignment. She didn't get best chosen best. And she was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough. My work's not good enough. I tried really hard and I've got no praise. And I get her to praise herself, to love herself. Even if, even if it doesn't come from anyone else, you have to say I did a good job and, and well done and, and give yourself that love that, you know, people around you, they might think it and feel it, but might not be able to express it. Um, not because you don't deserve it, but because of whatever's going on for them. So, you know, being your own 
loving parent, cheerleader, your own guide, your own mentor, your own sponsor, you know, um, and, and, you know, teaching clients to, to do that because we beat ourselves up. I mean, I beat myself up for years and years and I don't say that I don't do it anymore because I do still have times when I do. And then I'm like, Oh, and I try and stop and get into that loving place. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's normally when there's kind of fear there or anger or hurt that something's caused that kind of behavior to come back up. Well, I think it's so important that you're aware of the fact that you have these these peaks and troughs in your life because you know almost it makes you more accessible as as a therapist. I think if you if you we've already dis, we've already touched upon it, but if you sort of went into all of these meetings like oh look at me, look how amazing I am, look how perfect everything is in my life now, that's just not accessible. Whereas if you explain to people, you know, we all have all of these feelings, and it's about mm-hmm. managing them, and it's about the daily practice of loving ourselves. That's just so big. And I mean, you're such an interesting person. I, and and you're a very warm person. I love it. I love speaking to you. So many questions. But I want to ask you about the start of it all, the addiction. And, you know, how bad was that? When you look back at it now, how bad was it in comparison, you know, in the context of other people? Were you a serious alcoholic? Were you a serious addict? Or do you think it was just something which you didn't like and you're like a, a bad habit which you wanted to change? I mean, how bad did it get? You went to AA, obviously, and that gave you yeah. that gave you a platform to start exploring. The so I want to ask about that. And also, you know, was there a, a, a moment of enlightenment or did it happen over time? Yeah, so for me, yeah, great, great. Um, yeah, good, good, yeah, great way of wording that, actually. So... I, if I compare myself with some of the alcoholic behavior, if you had it on a spectrum, I'd probably somewhere be in the middle of the road because I didn't drink every day. Um, You know, I didn't drink at work. Um, You know, I didn't crash cars. I didn't, you know, get into violent fights and things like that. But I was in the middle of the spectrum because I was what you would term a blackout drinker. So I would drink to not passing out where you fall asleep or fall over and pass out. I would black out. So walking, talking, dancing, shagging, all sorts of behavior, no memory. And it's <laughs> honestly terrifying. Yeah. Like, so I came to in, you know, in situations where I was like, I don't like, I've got a few really funny stories. Like I've got one where I came to with my feet on the couch and I was sitting on the back of the couch on the arm of the couch and and my hands were out and you know like I'm telling a story like I'm doing you know if you could see me now my hands would be out and and I had this room of people looking at me and laughing and I was like where have I come from wow that must have been scary oh I freaked out and they were like because I was in my own home and they were like, you're, you're in, you're in your home, you're in your lounge. I was like, yeah, but how did I get here? And they were like, what, what are you talking? Because I literally stopped mid story. I don't, I don't even know what I had been talking about a second before and whatever it was, they said it was a very funny story. Um, and then my two of my girlfriends, you know, took me out of the room, took me into a bedroom. And I was like, my last memory, it was daylight. What mm. time is it? What day is it? You know, like, um, and that was so scary. That's what got me sober at 24 you know, because I was still very young. That's what pushed me, you know, those types of experiences. Because what happened was people started to tell me I had a problem. I've got a beautiful letter written to me by a friend of mine, Zaid, who lived in, you know, we lived together in London houses. And he actually said, you know, like, you're on a party bus, and you don't know how to get off. 
Um, you know, and he said the story you told me the other night. And of course, I was in a blackout. So I'd been honest with him in a blackout about how I was really feeling. And then, of course, had no memory of it until mm. he presented this letter to me saying I could lose your friendship right now, but I'm willing to take that risk because you are in serious trouble and you think that your life's normal because you've got a job and you're going to work and you're living in a flat now, you know, a smaller flat. It wasn't in a party flat anymore, but I was still having all of these situations happen to me. Mm. And I can remember going, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, and I kept that letter. So there's definitely something, and I think it was not long late, later, maybe half a year that I got sober. But other people were starting to say, Lorraine, you've got a problem. And most of the time I'd go, yeah, yeah, I'm really concerned too. But on the inside, I was thinking, I've got a problem. You've got a problem. You snort cocaine. You drink. You drugs. You, you know, like, so all these The people, ego again. The ego, yeah. the pride saying, yes, yeah, you've got a problem too, you know. It's like, yeah. It hurts. It hurts to hear that sort of stuff. Exactly. And then so, yeah, I just had like another weekend where, um, oh, no, that's right. Um, first off, I my friend came over from New Zealand and I was joking because she hadn't seen me for years about how AA was the first number in my mobile phone. To this day, no one has owned up of who put that in there. I don't know. <laughs> who put Alcoholics Anonymous's number in my mobile phone, but I joked about it for months. When it gets bad enough, I'll call it, you know? Mm, mm. Um, and, it, you know, luckily for me, it did get bad enough and I did call it. And, but it was, so there was a com com combination of things. There was a combination of, of people telling me I had a problem, but at the same time partying with me and drinking and drugging with me. So it was kind of, you know, like, sure. you know, felt hypocritical. Then there was a, a, a guy that had actually just rented, one of our flatmates had gone back to South Africa and he'd leased out his room for the month. And that guy, he wasn't like all of us. You know? So was this, in, was this in London? Or this is in London. Okay. Yes, I'm gotcha. in London. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I'm in London. Yeah. And he stayed for the month and he saw the carnage. You know, he, he mm. dabbled a very little bit, but he, you know, he was relatively normal in that respect. He rang up or I rang him or something and I said to him, yeah, I'm really sorting my life out. I, I was doing some diet or doing something, I don't know. And he said to me, I'll believe it when I see it. And I said, what do you, I was like so offended. What, what mm. do you mean? And he said, you know, we've had this conversation about three or four times now that you're changing your life, that you're getting off the drugs, that you're stopping drinking, you know, and I was like, I had no recollection of these other phone calls that I'd had with right. him, you know? And so that was a real kind of slap in the face. Um, it takes a lot of courage, as you said, from these friends as well, doesn't it? Because a lot of people, there's a lot of pushback from people when you do, if you ever do sort of suggestion, and maybe you should look at this part of your life. Like yeah. you usually get a lot of pushback and resentment, don't you? You absolutely do. And, and I was like so nice on the outside, but inside I was raging at mm. them all, you know, mm. like I wouldn't have said to them, you know, how dare you? But on the inside, that's what I was saying. Saying. Well, really, they just cared about you. They did exactly. They 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 just wanted. They didn't want to see me because they would see me on the come downs. They would see me when I would come out of the blackout in fear and terror and not knowing who I was with and how I'd got there. And so it was Easter actually, Easter in two thousand and one, and we'd been away for the weekend. And I was in and out of blackout all weekend. I'd left a pub because I, I don't know. I'd taken offence at something and not told anyone I was leaving. I'd got in the car with a strange person. Luckily, he did drop me at the house. He mm. didn't do anything. You know, he could have taken me anywhere. Oh, my God. Um, all sorts of things. And I came out of that weekend and I rang. <laughs> I rang that number. Wow. And uh, luckily for me, I haven't had a drink since my first meeting. Wow. And then uh, you were like in your mid-20s then? I was 24. Yeah. And so do yeah. you think you could have got out of your situation and changed your path had you not gone to AA? 
I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't think so. I think what you're doing is singing the praises of AA because I've spoken to lots of people who say that it's absolutely seminal, critical in their life path. Yeah, yeah. So I I put my recovery, my sobriety down to AA. I don't go anymore, but um, I, I I don't think the way that I was living, the house that I was living in, the party lifestyle that I was living in, I don't think going to see a hypnotherapist like myself or going to see another type of therapist I don't think it would have been enough. I needed the I needed the group. I needed the group, the power of the group, you know. And what um, is it specifically about the power of the group that helped you out of your out of the woods to start with? I think just your you, you know the accountability. I'm going to go to a meeting. Mm. Um, you know, like you turn up. There's other people there. You know, like like you've said about me sharing things. You know, honestly, the first meeting I went to. Uh, there were a couple of guys that shared about insanity and insane asylums and violence, and I thought, oh, I don't belong here. This is wonderful. Mm, mm. And then a young lady, a young lady shared. Oh, thank God! <laughs> and I was like, "Yay! I'm not an alcoholic. I can leave," you know. And then um, a young lady shared, and she shared part of my story. And um, you know, I looked up, and there was a sign that says, "You are no longer alone." And I thought, "Wow, that's exactly how I felt." I because I thought that it was just me, you know. Like even though there were people around me that were just as chaotic. I seemed to be more chaotic than, than, you know, than, than everyone else. And, um, you know, I was the drunkest one and I was the one that was blacking out. So they would do dumb, crazy drunk things, but I was the one that had no memory of it whatsoever. And, you know, some, sometimes they would say, we're not even going to tell you what you did, Lorraine, because they would just know I couldn't cope with hearing what I'd done the night before. Um, and so, yes, and some of these memories of, you know, most of these memories have never come back. People would tell me blow by blow what happened and I still know nothing gone. And um, I learned in early recovery that it's um, uh, the start of Korsakoff syndrome, which is wet, wet brain, where you basically start losing your mind, you know, start losing your mind. And people can get stuck in that place. And that terrified me. So fear kept me sober for a while because I went to these meetings and I heard these really scary alcohol drinking stories that I was like, mine's bad enough. I don't want any of this. But then, then you get into a, you know, I got into a group of, you know, London was great because London had a lot of people in their twenties, a lot of, you know, um, it wasn't just what people think of as an alcoholic, you know, under the bridge, brown paper bag type, you know, it was, it was everything, lawyers, doctors, teachers, you know, normal everyday people. Um, And so I got into a group, you know, like with this women's group, and we'd go out for the, the meeting and then we'd go for coffee or dinner. You know, Saturday mornings, we always went to a Saturday morning meeting and then we went to the cafe for lunch. So it became a real social thing. And then they have some incredible raves, like AA and NA raves, where everyone's sober dancing and it's amazing. So, you know, I was 24. At first I thought oh, I'm giving up my life, you know, um, I'm 24. How, how come I have to, you know, like you'd hear people gotcha. in their 40s yeah. and 50s and I'd be like, oh, I'm 24. How come I have to give up so young? and now I just think oh thank god I'm so grateful that I gave up so young um and so yeah so it was the group thing and you you just got I just got carried along you know someone would say hey do you want to go to a meeting tomorrow and you did and you know and then they'd say hey do you want to go to this and and then you end up doing conventions and camps and you know they go to pontons and butlins and they take over the whole place and there's a great social aspect to to the fellowship of, of you know the twelve step fellowship that um, that I just I just loved and I needed I needed that if I was trying to do all of that on my own 
trying to get sober on my own whilst living in the houses that I was living in with my friends group that was still drinking and taking drugs, I don't think I could have done it. Mm. And then at that point, is that when you started to become a therapist? No, I think that was a lot later, right? Or, or no, no, later. a lot. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I was 24 when I got sober, 40 when I became a therapist. Wow. And it's funny because so many people come into, into 12 step groups and become therapists. And I said, I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I believed myself. Right. It just felt a bit cliche to you at the time or something, did it? It just it felt did. cliched. Right. It did because you did, you'd see so, you know, like, and you can understand it. Um, I think it was in your episode with your sister, actually. When oh, you said, thank you, you know, so much for listening, by the way. I got your messages the other day. It's really sweet. Oh, I got so much from her. I was like, I was taking notes, you know, like oh. she was talking about how she's a note taker. I was like, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. <laughs> I, she, I love my sister so much. She's awesome. She is. I thought so too. I was, I'm a big fan. Yeah. She's a very honest person like yourself. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. There were so many similarities with what she was saying. Nice. And um, yeah, you, you asked her something about, um, or said something about, you know, do, do a lot of people go into psychology because they've had, you know, issues themselves with, you know, mm. mental health or something? And I was nodding along because I thought that's what you kind of saw in, in in AA. People would come in and then they'd start working for an alcohol service or they'd, you know, they'd, they'd you know, be, get into the field. Right. Um, and I was just like, oh, I don't want to spend any more time with, you know, I've spent all my life with alcoholics. Why would I want to do that? Um, but what happened is, you know, I became to be a therapist via a whole different route and I was no longer going to, to Alcoholics Anonymous. So it wasn't, you know, about me helping alcoholics that, you know, it was a completely different um, journey to how I got to where I am. Cause you'd, you'd sort of mastered alcohol by that stage or alcoholism, but you still had an addictive personality in other areas of your life, maybe. That's right. So what happened was I was, you know, drink free, drug free. I was even smoke free by then, but the eating had come and gone. So, you know, so I probably started with sugar when I was, you know, if I look back, sugar was probably my first addiction. Um, and so that came back into my life. And over my life, I was like everything from size eight to 18. I'm not sure what the American sizes are of that. But um, the, you know, like I was, you know, smaller to, 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 to very large. And um I was back in, I was in a very stressful job. Um, I didn't realize anything about imposter syndrome or, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd replaced the alcoholism for workaholism. Right. And I got, I got a lot of validation from, you know, doing this, this big project management job. And, and, um, but I was also, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks sometimes wow. and really pushing myself. And I literally was like work and meetings and mm. eating. And I, I was really not kind of happy in myself. The eating was like a release for all the stress, basically. Yeah, stress eating, emotional eating, comfort eating, you mm. know, all of those words, they're interchangeable, you know, for, for that type of behavior. There was addictive, there was definitely like addictive, like, like I can't have alcohol, I can't have most types of sugar, you know, like, so there's, it's not like some things you can go, okay, I can do that in moderation. So there was a very kind of all or nothing personality, gotcha. <laughs> you know, like I'm all in or I'm not in. <laughs> you, got, um, you must have had so much strength to overcome that sort of habitual aspect to your life. Because I know exactly how that feels totally. I mean, I wouldn't say like I have addiction across the board, but there's certainly things which I'm, I feel very all or nothing about. I get into it. I mean, even gardening. I started, gar I, have no, I know nothing about gardening. I've started gardening now. I walk into my garden. Two hours later, I've got really sore backs. I've just been digging for two hours. I almost black. <laughs> out with gardening 
I haven't got the gardening one yet, but you can talk to my partner because he's done two nights of two hours of gardening. Nice. This week. But, but, yeah. So is it with the with addiction and with your addictions, do you think there's a correlation between them all? It doesn't really matter what the substance is. It's just something in your psychology which makes you want to do this all or nothing thing. So what I know today, like with the rapid transformational therapy, you know, using hypnosis and the different techniques, if I believe that our mind is like a computer and everything that I'm doing is a computer program. So I've got a brushing the teeth program. I've got a making the bed program or a not making the bed program, whichever it is, you know, um, how to load the dishwasher program, you know, like um, I've got a drinking program, an eating program, you know, a relationship program. Sometimes there's multiple programs. And so for me, you know, I haven't had the therapy that I do on alcohol, but I know that I would go back to high school if I put, you know, if I was put into hypnosis and I didn't feel cool. I had glasses, I had a plate, so I had self-esteem issues. You know, the weight, weight was up and down already, you know, fluctuations with puberty, didn't feel as attractive and alcohol gave me confidence. And so, you know, so I, I drank for confidence and, I, and then, I, oh, I feel cool now because I'm hanging out with the cool girls, you know, and I'm smoking. Oh, I'm so cool now. Right. And Acceptance, so, basically. Yeah, except, and it's so common how many clients come to me with smoking, drinking, drugs, things like that, and they go back to a scene where oh, I'm with so-and-so and she's offering me a cigarette and if I say no, I'm not going to be cool or I'm not going to be liked or she's going to, you know, she's not going to yeah. want to be my friend yeah. and things like that. And and so... Oh, we get and, it's, these... and also the other thing about kids is I think kids can be more brutal than adults in, in many respects. You know, you think about certain scenarios at school and it oh, almost, it's almost like you develop a conscience as you get older, don't you? But it's that perfect storm of feeling insecure yourself and then the brutality of others at times when you don't fit in, when you're not accepted. And we just want to fit in. You oh know, my God, like, absolutely. I, just, I didn't do, I, so basically I was a really late developer and I, I loved football when I was a kid, but I, yeah. everybody else was going through puberty and I wasn't. And so I just didn't do sport for two years because that meant I didn't have to get in the showers. So I just get my parents to write me a, you know, a sick yeah. note, a, a fake sick note. And then I didn't have to go to sports. So I didn't have to deal with it. That's how yeah. insecure I was about that whole scenario. It's, it's an awful time of life in some ways, isn't it? Oh, it really is. And you're in this place and you've already got some programs from when you were younger anyway, because, you know, we, we get programmed from zero to seven. We're just little mm. subconscious little sponges picking things up. And, um, you know, so for me, it's like, I, you know, I find the, you know, like the computer, the, the program in my mind, the eating program was found and then deleted or upgraded, just like we upgrade all the apps on our phones gotcha. and laptops and even my swim watch, you know, gets updated. Why, if we update the software on all of our devices, why wouldn't we update the software of our mind? <laughs> you know, sense. like Absolutely. if I'm seeing a behavior, you know, like even like this lady this week, um, tiredness and she thinks she's got a thyroid problem so i put her into hypnosis get her to turn her eyes inwards have a look at the thyroid nothing wrong the thyroid's perfect the thyroid says there's nothing wrong with me and then the thyroid says i'm responding to your words and your language and because she's saying things like oh, i really just need a break I, I really wish i could just take some time off work you know but she's in a job where she can't really just easily take time off work her body and mind working together, boom, there's a program. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a thyroid problem. Even though there's nothing wrong with your thyroid, it's gonna present like a thyroid problem. Mm. You're gonna be so tired, you're gonna to go to the doctor, you're gonna get time off, boom, there's your time off. Wow. And she's like, so she got to talk to her own mind and body and say, actually, I can do everything that I need to do. I, what I need is energy, not tiredness. So, you know, so she can start changing her language to go, 
I can do this job and do this course that she's doing at the same time because that's what it was there was like oh I want to do this course all the time and so the job and so the you know it's like these are just programs this is our, our mind is like a computer if, if I say to my um, email you know always send Oliver's emails to my podcast folder that's mm. a direct instruction so if I say to myself I'm always going to be addicted to sugar I've always been addicted to sugar I've all I'm always going to be fat boom there's the program change wow. that program and then once we change and it's just a language shift and yes it takes a bit of time and that's why you listen to a hypnotic recording that starts reprogramming the brain but once you see it, you can start to see it and you go, ah, oh, there's my program. So this morning I got up at 5.30, had my breakfast, did a two kilometer swim. By the time I got to lunch after it, then I went to a meeting. By the time I got to lunch, I was hungry. Mm. I'm standing in the queue to buy some food. There's a counter there of, you know, chocolate cakes and brownies <laughs> and things. My mind says, get the caramel slice. <laughs> and I can say to my mind, yep, I can see why you want that because you're hungry. Mm. So why don't you have your scrambled eggs and hash browns or whatever it was? And if you still want it, you can come gotcha. back up. I, di I didn't. I had my meal. I had my social connection with my friends. I've rewired the program. I can see the program now. So I could see, I could see the old thought. Awareness, like, basically. You're aware exactly. of what's going on, of the mechanism yeah. of it. And sometimes I'll go... After I've had lunch, I still might feel like I want the, the chocolate slice or something. And I'll ask myself what that's about. And sometimes I might have some emotional pain and my mind's like, you need some pleasure and, and that cake is pleasure. And I'm like, whoa, no, it's not. Cause then I've got the, the, all the, everything that comes with the cake. Um, and sometimes it's like, well, you know, I'm still hungry. Or sometimes it's like, well, you're really angry and I want to, I want to comfort you. You know, all sorts of things might come up and I, I get to make that choice. And sometimes I've chosen, sometimes I've chosen to have that cake or that slice and then gone, well, that wasn't bad. That wasn't good. Cause then I've got furry teeth and indigestion and bloated <laughs> stomach and, you know, all these reactions that my, cause my body says, I don't like this stuff. Mm, it's, my, yeah. it's, it's the computer mind that says, Ooh, have that. Because, you know, when I was younger, that made me feel better. So interesting. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, I know that you're a massive advocate of hypnotism, hypnotherapy. I really yeah. want to talk about um, RTT as well, uh, and and really the the enlightenment which helped you define RTT. But is how do you ever not find the solution from hypnotherapy with clients? Is there ever a time when you can't get through that door? Because it sounds yes. like you you always feel like there's always you always generally have success in terms of finding out more about the person, unlocking unlocking you know pathways and, and obstacles in their life in their in their subconscious. Yeah, so I think it depends on each and every single client. So um, I am like a pit bull. That's what my my partner says. You're like a pit bull with hypnosis because I, <laughs> I I will keep digging and going like oh. I'm not gonna you know like I hold on like they they grip with their teeth don't they I'm like I'm gonna keep going until Good I find you. something tenacity um, yeah so yes but then it comes down to to the client the client's got to want it mm. first off so they've got to be open to it you've got to be open to it. Um, so some clients will come to me and they think they're open, but there's resistance. So there's different techniques you can do to try and work through the resistance. Um, sometimes and does it usually come down, sorry to interrupt, does it usually come down to one moment in their life that's been crystallized and hidden away? Some no. moment of trauma? No, no, that's what's so amazing about it. Sometimes it's like not, like people come expecting, oh, am I going to find something? Yeah. 
trauma? Am I going to find something that I didn't know? And yes, sometimes people do. Sometimes I'll say to the client, were you aware of what you've just seen? And they're like, no, no idea. And other times they're like, yes, I was. I've had clients come to me and go, I had one guy come to me and said, when I was um, a baby, I was in the war and I can, I was in my mum's arms down underneath the house. When I was seven, this happened. When I was 11, this happened. And I wanted to go to these memories. And so being as I am, I went to those memories because that's what he wanted. But I was like, I'm just going to go one more, <laughs> you know? Um, and then this one more just like cracked open all this stuff that he wasn't aware of. And it wasn't trauma. Um, it was, you know, like, it's not always trauma. It's everyday things that happen to us in our lives where our little child brain has interpreted it wrong. Okay. So mummy and daddy are fighting and the child goes, I've got to stop this, hmm. but I can't because I'm only four, five, six, seven. And they might try something. Some children will try something and it doesn't work. And then boom, I'm powerless. I'm always so I'm not good enough. That's where the I'm not good enough comes from. Exactly. Sometimes. I'm not good enough. Like right. some people just go back to like this, like this lady this week. She was like, I've done my my homework, I've done my assignment, I'm feeling really proud of my assignment. I take it into school, I get no recognition. Somebody else's assignment gets picked for being the best. And I think mine is the best. And I and I'm disappointed. I'm not good enough. I try hard. What's the point? What's the point in trying? There, mm. boom, there's a program. And though they go, we go through life going, what's the point? Wow. What's the point? What's the point? Mm. And um, it's not always trauma. It's just where the mind has made decisions. And it's like, I will go for multiple scenes. So, you know, I aim for a, you know, a session, a, a minimum of three scenes, but some people don't get scenes. Like, um, so if you say to me, uh, you know, if a client's a therapist's working on me and they say, okay, I'm taking you back to the root cause and the reason for why you overeat if I was doing that. And then they do a countdown and they go, you know, where are you? Where's your mind taking you? Some questions, whatever. I'm like, nah, nothing. I've got darkness. I don't see my house. I don't see where I grew up. I don't see a memory of, you know, mum making me eat broccoli or anything like this. Um, but all of a sudden my chest might hurt or my shoulder might hurt or my back might hurt. I've had people have fingers twitching um, and the body speaks. And so then I just get that wow. body part and I'm just like, you know, so I had a whole session on, on sleep issues for me and indigestion came up. And it was like this indigestion gave all this information about why I wasn't sleeping. So it's not necessarily a visual memory for everyone. Sometimes it's thoughts, um, but sometimes people can have blocks. People can have resistance. Um, I'll try and work with them to go through the resistance. That can be from a subconscious level of the subconscious mind wanting to keep them safe, that they don't feel they're safe enough to see and gotcha. cope, cope with, it, with what, whatever they might see. Sometimes it's an ego thing um even my, like myself I, I would say that I'm a challenging client because I know so much that that it's hard for me to get my conscious mind to go to go away and let my subconscious because when your conscious mind's in the, doing the work the subconscious mind doesn't need to do anything right it's, so it's harder to pull back the curtain with you yeah because I'm I'm like and sometimes I'll be like oh I would do this differently and there's the therapist mind popping in you know I would use this technique and it's so it, it's a challenge to when you do know stuff and you have a level of self-awareness sometimes that can be a great thing and sometimes that can be a challenging thing I have had people that have had quite emotional um, sessions which then scares them um, men, if, you know, I, I would say more so men in, in my experience, just with the clients that I've seen because <gasps> they cried 
Yeah, right. God forbid. Yeah. And so, and then I'm a, you know, I would say I'm an attractive woman. So, you know, for a man to cry in front of attractive woman, then Mm. (gasps) there's a whole, you know, there could be all that kind of level of stuff going on. And so, you know, then the next session, there's, there's more resistance than the first session because they're scared of, whoa, is that going to happen again? Right. You know, like, am I going to break down? Like their barriers are even further up the second time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because most people, the barriers come down as you work together and you build up trust. But when you've broken down and cried and that's not comfortable for you then you become like oh you know so so i wouldn't say that i've had a hundred percent success um i would say that i've given my best in every session that i've done but then it does come down to each individual person as well whether they're willing to dig deep and do the work um you know and sometimes people come out of a session and they go was that it? My mum said that I had fat knees when I was 12. And so then I became fat, you know, and it was like, yeah, well, cause your mind went, oh, if my mum thinks I'm fat, I may as well be fat. You know, right. it wasn't trauma. It was just mum pointing out that your knees looked a bit chubby today or something, you know, like. Drummed um, into and, you sort of thing. Yeah. And these things aren't just one-offs, you know, like, um, you know, there's, there's generally a pattern, but the first one can be um, attached to emotion. If there's emotion attached to it, um, you know, it's like when we call an imprint, for example, like if, if, if somebody um, gets attacked by a dog or a dog comes running out and barks and the mum goes, mum or dad goes, go away. And the dog runs away and then they just carry and they go, you okay? Yep. Okay. Come on. Let's carry on. If mum or dad freaks out, you know, yells at the person who owns the dog, makes this big drama out of it. The kid's watching this. They're scared anyway, because the right. dog's run out at them. And then it imprints even deeper. Sure. Yep. Like, I mean, this one lady I'm working with on, you know, the, the fear of sharks, Jaws, the movie Jaws. That's what did it scene, for her. Scene after scene after scene, she just kept going back to different scenes in that movie. Wow. You know, um, that embedded in her so deep, mm. the, the, fear of, the fear of sharks. And, you know, we laughed because if you actually saw the Jaws shark at Universal Studios, <laughs> you know, it's this big mechanical thing that yeah, comes out course. of the water. <laughs> And you. is that part of the therapy? Is that part of the therapy? I mean, how do you? So once you've uncovered this, how do you then you sort of you know yeah? How do you then find a solution so somebody can move forward with more happiness and you know? Yeah, well, funnily enough, yeah, funnily enough, it goes back to what you said earlier about fear and fear and love. So the fear of fear of sharks is being overweighed by the love of water and the love of swimming. Ah, okay. So we're we're, we're strengthening. I love swimming. I want to be swimming. I'm choosing to be out in the water. I'm, you know, and all sorts of stuff of I am safe, I'm calm, lots of logical things. Like there was one thing that I found, there was one fact that I found that more people die by coconuts hitting them on the head than they do of shark attacks. (laughs) You know, so it's, it's trying to get the mind to see that this fear isn't actually based in any fact, yeah. you know, and you like so, the, har- you, you the harbor that fear, we swim in. Yeah, you solve her fear, fear of sharks, but she goes away with an obsession with coconuts. That's right. I'm never going to sit under a <laughs> coconut tree. Exactly. With the hypnotherapy, um, with the hypnotherapy, um, is it are people aware of what's going on throughout the hypnotherapy, or, or do they sort of have some kind of blackout themselves, and then are they aware of what's happening the whole time? Oh, great question. Yeah. So yeah, you're aware of what's happening the whole time. You might kind of drift off a little bit feeling like you're asleep when there's a recording made being made for you, you kind of come in and out. But in the session itself, where, um, you know, I'm saying I'm taking you back to the root cause of your issue, you know, click, where are you? Oh, I'm five. I'm in this house. You know, you're interacting the whole time. 
So, you know, I'm asking you questions, I'm probing you, I'm getting you to answer questions. So some people, um, this works really well for me, um, rather than just kind of letting me, leaving me to delve around into my mind, give me a question that my mind can answer or a statement. So I'm the part of Lorraine that is angry right now and I'm angry because, boom, and then the information will come out. So, you know, so you're, you're interacting. I find after a session, sometimes people will remember it vividly Sometimes what people, it'll fade, um, you know, it might fade immediately. It might be a, you know, like it might be a week later. So sometimes for me, cause I want to use my, um, I use my sessions as, a, you know, as experiences to help other people. I have to write them down afterwards. I have to write down what came up because okay. I know that it's just going to go eventually, which is great, which is kind of what you want. Cause you don't want it to be, you don't want the negative stuff to be staying there. You've done, you know, there's, there's techniques that I've done to, to clear the the stuff that you might have seen that wasn't so positive if you've seen the belief that i'm not worthy then your whole recording is going to be telling you how worthy you are if you've seen i'm not enough then you're going to be told you're enough i'm not lovable then you're lovable um you don't want to be focusing on keeping that negative going so you do do techniques to say you're letting go of the past you know that can be a physical thing for some people a visual thing sometimes it's an audio you know they you can get people to talk to people under hypnosis and you know, they're not, the other person's not there, but you can get them to reply and then you, you learn all sorts of things. Like, you know, when, when clients say, you know, oh, mum, you know, I didn't feel like I loved you. Then the mum comes back in hypnosis and says, oh my God, I loved you so much. I just didn't know how to show you because wow. I was never shown love, you know? Mm. And you get these aha moments and you're like, ah, oh. so it wasn't that I wasn't lovable. It was just that, you know, my mum had this, my dad had that. And, you know, um, you know, one woman this week was like, you know, I was just so stressed and I'd had such a bad life myself that I didn't know. I just was, you know, holding everything together to be your, you know, to just get, to just, you know, put clothes on your back and food on the table. You know, I didn't know how to give you love and emotion stuff as well, because I didn't have that experience because we can yeah. only give what we know. Absolutely. It feels like, um, RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy, was a real moment of enlightenment on your journey in your life, your ongoing journey. And so I wonder, how did you find RTT? And the other thing I want to ask about it, because from speaking to you, you feel to me, it feels to me like you're somebody with very strong instinct as well. So how much of RTT is um, science and how much of it is, you know, sort of empathy and, and intuition? Yeah, well, I think, you know, so I came, I was four, I turned 40 and I kind of spiraled down. I had no problem thinking, running up to turning 40. Didn't think anything of it. Like everyone was like, oh, you're going to be 40. And I was like, it's just a number. And then I turned 40 and I was like, I'm 40. I'm single. I'm fat. I've got no partner. I'm childless. All these things kind of just imploded on me. Mm. And somebody sent me, um, Marissa Peer, who is the creator of Rapid Transformational Therapy. Somebody sent me her video um, all about, you know, some, I don't believe that I'm enough. And um, she tells lots of different stories about that. And I'd started watching it the first time somebody had sent it to me and then kind of thought, oh, what is this? And turned it off. <laughs> and, you know. We do that so, with so much stuff, don't we? And then yeah. you can often find that you're so into it a couple of weeks later. Exactly. I'll say, who is this? Like, you the know, initial like, resistance. Yeah. 
And then like about a week later, somebody else mentioned it. And Mm. what actually happened was I had overeaten. I'd eaten three or four ice creams, a whole box of what are called scorched almonds, you know, chocolate covered almonds. And I went to bed feeling violently sick. I couldn't lie on my back. I couldn't lie on my stomach. I was literally in the fetal position on my side Mm. and just kind of, I think at that point, I, I don't remember clearly, but I think I kind of called out to my higher power something's got to change or I can't go on like this or something like that. And at 3.30 in the morning, my my cat at the time, she started crying and wailing in the house. And I was like, what's going on? And I sorted her out and I got back into bed and my mind was racing. I hate my job. I'm stressed. I hate my life. And it was just, and I couldn't turn it off and I couldn't sleep. And I was like, oh, this, I need to watch something. So I turned YouTube on to, to watch anything and Marissa Peer's video was the first thing that popped up because it was the last thing I'd watched, right? right? Probably. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so I thought, oh, whatever. I what the hell? I'm just going to watch it. That was around about 4:30. By 5:30 a.m., I was in my living room with a piece of cardboard, magazines, scissors, and glue. I was, make- <laughs> I, was I was making a vision board, and I was like, wow. I'm not. I'm not enough. I'm not enough, you know, like all my life, I haven't believed that I'm enough. And um, it was literally like a, like a more than a light bulb. It was like an explosion in my brain. And, um, and I was like, how, and then she does these, um, she does this thing where you put your left arm out in front of you and then you spin it around behind you and you see as far as it can go. And then you bring your arm back and then you close your eyes and you say to your left arm, you're going to go a third further. You're like rubber. You're like a Barbie arm. You're like spaghetti. You're like jelly. And then you lift your arm again and you turn it around and you're like, oh my God, it's gone a third further. It's like gone further. And I, I honestly couldn't get it any further beforehand, but I just told my arm to go further and it went further. How, how did I do that? And she, get, she gets you to imagine you're eating a lemon. And you start, you know, salivating and, and, you know, even just saying it to you now, my mouth starts to tingle as if I'm about to bite a lemon because I've done this so many times now. My mind's like, lemon? Ugh, yuck. Um, and so all of these things that I listened to, I started binge watching her videos and it was just like so much of what she said. I literally stopped overeating the ice creams overnight without any hypnosis at this point just with some of the things that she talks about and about the how the mind works the rules of the mind like I say it's like a computer she yeah, calls the it the reprogramming yeah she calls it like the rules of your mind like your mind will do exactly what it thinks is in your best interest so it thought that eating sugar and ice cream was in my best interest because any time I had pain my mind went oh, have some gotcha. pleasure that was you your know? crutch yeah yeah And so, and then, you know, the mind loves what's familiar. Well, it was familiar for me to work a really long day, pick up four ice creams, come home, close the curtains, put some crap television on and eat and watch TV all night, you know? Um, And, and, you know, the mind takes you from pain and towards pleasure. So, oh, stressful day, that's pain, have an ice cream. Then you have the ice cream, right? And then your mind's like, oh my God, I feel so guilty and ashamed. And then that's pain. So the mind goes, have another ice cream. Right, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you're stuck in this program, <laughs> like going around and around. And so this was like April, April, 2017, early April, 2017. And I binge watched her videos And then I got to a video that said, you can do what I do. I train people to do rapid transformational therapy. And I knew, Oliver, in the pit of my stomach, in my gut, I knew that this was what I was meant to do. Stronger than anything I'd ever, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now as I say it, you know, like, I just beautiful. found your calling. I really did. You found a purpose, some extra purpose. Yeah. 
And I booked my tickets to London. I booked my accommodation. I, I did follow the process. You have to, you had to at the time have a phone call with the, the team and all these different things that you did and got watch webinars and do all these things. And I did everything. And then I went to the bank and they said, yes, they'd give me a loan. And so I, I did everything before I told anyone. Now, up until this time in my life, I had spoken to somebody, whether it was an AA sponsor, a parent, a friend, a mentor, a guide, a therapist of some sort, about every decision I'd ever made you know, and I did all of this. And then I told people, I'm going to London to train to be an RTT therapist. Because the it's always time. usually the other way around, right? You sort of test yeah. the water with people, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, you know, but you were actually so passionate about it. And it felt so right from the off. It off-back. did. It just felt Amazing. like this. The, yeah. And, and I did it right. I came back and I went down to four days a week, and then three days a week before I became full time, you know, but um, I knew that I could do this. And I don't know how I knew. I honestly don't. And it's been, like you say about the instinct, you know, coming back to that instinct thing. I've learned so much. Yes, I learned so much on the course and the, and all the follow-up, you know, stuff that we do online and all the masterclasses we have and everything like that and, all you know, the continued professional development. But I have learned so much just by working with clients and trusting that intuition, trusting that instinct Sometimes I am in a session and I don't know why I go for a fourth scene and then boom, something comes up or sometimes a fifth scene or even a sixth scene um, before I get the nail that sometimes I'm like, I don't know what, what's, what I should be doing here. And then all of a sudden something will just come to me and I'll, and I'll try it on for size with, with the client. And then it's exactly what they needed. Um, sometimes I might just ask the right question at the right time. And I'm like, where did that question come from? You know, like it's it's some some of the things that I do I haven't been trained in. They wow. just seem so to you've come got a natural naturally. attitude for it, a natural yeah. intuition, yeah. Yeah, and so so yes, yeah, so there's been like I mean I've I've you know read a lot of um, there's a lady Dr. Janice Webb who does childhood emotional neglect. So I've read all her books and you know because so many of my clients were coming to me you know presenting with emotional neglect. Um, you know, like um, Bruce Lipton's work, you know, I've uh, done a lot of that Louise Hay. I mean, I love Louise Hay and all her affirmations and, and you can heal your life type stuff. So I bring in what I feel, you know, like I do pure RTT in a session, but I will also bring in tools, you know, where I feel that they're needed to help a client um, from any experience. Sometimes it's my own experience. Sometimes there's real power in being able to put your hand on someone's shoulder if it's a face-to-face session and say, I've been there, you're not alone. Yeah, amazing. And also you clearly get a kick from helping people, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. Like when, when, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, you're just going to be sitting, listening to, you know, unhappy people all the time. And I'm like, no, the thing about this is I get people to go back to where they've made some, all it is is where you've made a decision in in your life that's become a program. So if that decision is... Um, you know, like when I'm old enough, I'm going to eat as much ice cream as I want because mummy won't give me enough ice cream now. You know, like that is as simple as that sometimes. I had a client who, who you know, every time they drove past the dairy, she would look longingly at the dairy and be, and be like, I want an ice cream. But she knew not to ask mum because if they asked, it was a definite no. But sometimes mum would stop and give them an ice cream. Sometimes they, and they never knew when. And every time she went past, she would say things to herself like, when I'm, when I'm old enough and I've got my own job and I can spend my own money, I'm going to get ice cream every day. And that's it. It's not trauma. It's just mummy wouldn't give me ice cream every day. <laughs> and it's, it's set up a program, you know. And of course, 
the mum was doing the right thing not to give ice cream every day, but you know, the child just wants ice cream every day. Sure. So it, it's, it's not necessarily. Yeah. So it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I do, I just, I love it when I can see the freedom that I, that, you know, that I help people get. And for me, the biggest learning is that we have all the answers within us. Cause I used to get scared. Like when people would come to me with something I've never heard of, um, and what do I, what do I know about this? And who am I to think that I can work on this with someone, but put them into hypnosis, get them to say, I'm the part of Oliver that, that is his, some kind of physical thing that I've never heard of. And then the answers will come. And wonderful. then get the, get the client to tell you what they want. And then there's your recording Amazing. because, because it's using their words as much as possible. You're inspirational. I have worked with several of the people I've interviewed in the past, and I'd definitely be interested in doing some sessions with you. I, there are, I feel like a, a very happy and fulfilled person. I definitely believe that happiness is a practice, you know, and contentment yeah. is a practice. And so I, all these daily affirmations and positive habits that I've created to try and, you know, supersede the negative ones. Yes. Uh, but, but of course, you know, everybody has their, their issues in their life. Oh, absolutely. I want to know, I want to know if you've heard of Tara Brock. Yes. Now, how does that name, why does that name... Is that, is she even... she's, she's a spiritual teacher she has a podcast I, I just basically I promote her wherever I possibly get a chance and you're clearly somebody who likes to have a broad portfolio of tools and sources to draw upon and she's one of the most the most wonderful people I've ever heard in my life the thing about great content for me is that it just feels relevant mm. whatever the subject and with her whatever she's talking about it feels relevant because it's about the human condition and we are all human beings and and so she's just a wonderful human being and whenever i'm feeling angry about a familiar relationship or something like that or feeling like i'm not enough i will regularly go back to her and and i de if you haven't heard any of her podcasts i definitely recommend you doing so because she's just wonderful and yeah there is this i she reminds you remind me of her somewhat because you're such a, a clear coherent speaker and you're clearly a very inspiring person you've given us some um, some references of of uh of tools that you use but if i was to ask you of one of your the most impactful books that you've ever ever read apart from what you've already spoken about is there something that really inspires you that might be of use to, to me and the audience oh gosh yeah i mean i do like to read um so yeah to be honest one of the recent ones funnily enough is men from mars women from venus which okay, I never, never it, I never it. ever would have thought that I would have read it, but it's helped so much with, because I was single for 11 years and I'm now, you know, almost mm. three and a half years in the most loving relationship I've ever been. And it's wonderful, but we do oh, have challenges beautiful. and a lot of the, you know, of and a lot of the challenges have come, have been from the differences of, of, you know, men and women and how we can be different. And so we're actually, me and my partner are reading this book. I read it and then we're reading it together. So we read a page each and then we mm. talk about it and stuff and it's wonderful. So that's really helped me in the relationship place. Um, there's a book, there's a book cool. called The Answer, um, which mm -hmm. I'm trying to get off my shelf without losing my earphones. Oh my God, look at that. I did it. <laughs> I actually did it without looking. Um, Alan and Barbara Pease, P-E-A-S-E. How to discover mm -hmm. what you want from life and then make it happen. My brother actually okay. um, gave me this. He was reading it and thought that I might like a copy. And it talks in there about um, what's called the reticular activating system, and um, which is kind of like you know the sub in the subconscious mind. But it talks about it being, you know, the, it's the brain's command and control center. It's like a GPS. So they give the example of if you 
um, if you, you know, say, for example, when I bought my blue Honda Jazz, I'd never seen blue Honda Jazzes before, but now all of a sudden I've bought one and I see them everywhere. Right, of you course, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your reticular activating system. So it okay, great fil example. filters out all these different things. So if I can, and it's all tied up with beliefs, which then ties up with what I do in RTT and all the belief work and stuff, you know, the RAS works the same way as a heat-seeking missile. So I see numbers everywhere, like 77's my birth year, and I seem to see it everywhere as well, because seven's my favorite number two now. But I, I, this morning, I read a reading on page 333. Then I left the meeting, and I saw two, two um, car license plates with 333 in them. Um, I always see, me and my partner, we, we always see 1111, you know. It's like, it's like the brain is programmed to see these things sure, now. to filter it out. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so so this you know this this book, the answer goes through. It's a lot of it's goal setting, you know, and visualization. And they talk about when I can't remember his name did the first four minute mile, and he visualized himself seeing himself run the mile in four, you know, in, in under four minutes. And oh, now, how? Uh, yeah, I can't remember his name right now either. And. Yeah, and he, you know, like he visualized it and visualized it and visualized it. And that's using that RAS, the built-in GPS. So right. you just, you know, so you decide where you want to go, you input the data. So it's like, you know, that's why it works so well with the hypnotic recordings, because I'm like, well, I'm focusing on what I want. I might not have it now, but the more I focus on it, the more I hear it, you know, then the more the RAS will go to work and find it. You know, so it's like saying, it's like saying to the, you know, or even the universe, you could, you know, it's like, um, I, I, you know, I need a solution for this problem in my life. And it's like, there you go, you've programmed it to look, and then all of a sudden you'll start to see it. And I suppose the way it equates into, into technology is, you know, you're talking about, you know, um, needing a new mattress, and then all of a sudden mattress ads pop up in Facebook and Instagram you know like so it's 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 pretty much like your personal algorithm like if you can if we can program it right then we're going to get you know it'll your RAS will pay attention filter out the irrelevant stuff and take us towards what we're chosen to believe so if I've chosen to believe that I'm going to get podcast interviews all the time and I'm going to get six to eight paying clients a week and I'm going to get x y and z then that's going to start to happen more and more and more but they also break it down into making manageable goals and how to deal when deal with people um when people were against you know like one of my favorite chapters was when they when they were saying you know follow through with what you're going to do despite what other people think do or say right. you know so i'm going to become an rtt therapist some people had some strong opinions about that but i'm going to follow through despite what they did and i have you know, and so that this it helped me with with lots of things like that. And actually, I need to tell my brother thank you because he probably doesn't know how much it helped me. Um, oh, yeah, so it, it is. It's probably one of the the unusual books because it's not like been a therapy book. It's not been a childhood neglect book. It's not been a healing your life book. It's been one of those ones that you're really pleasantly surprised with. Amazing. And that's it. That's something, you know, it's content that feels relevant, whoever reads it, because it's just a useful message. It sounds a bit like the law of attraction. Yes. Yeah, I think it probably would be very similar. Yeah. Um, I don't think you're going to have any 
problems they're doing a million podcasts and getting six to eight <laughs> clients a week the way that you speak and there is so much compassion in you as well as that sort of knowledge and the the, the sort of enthusiasm and hunger to continue helping people I love it you're a wonderful person oh, thank you <laughs> it's been an hour and a half it feels like about three minutes but I'm going to let you crack on with your Friday and um but Saturday I, I, for me oh really of yes. course <laughs> But uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I'm going to obviously put all the links to you in the, the show notes uh, on the website for my for my podcast. But how can people reach out to you simply? Uh, basically, LorraineMaguire.com is, is, is the best one. Or they can find me on Facebook or Instagram, Lorraine Maguire Therapy. Um, yeah, but yeah, my website, LorraineMaguire.com is the easiest. And you can book calls with me. You can watch videos that I've done. Of, you can even watch a video of me in the shower. Um, oh my goodness. I, mean, I, I can't believe I missed that one. I know. So I do, I do, um, you know, in the shower, I do positive affirmations. I call them the shower statements and I show people and I, I over exaggerate it. It's quite, I, I mean, I laugh at myself because I over exaggerate them. But I'm, and I've got one of me standing in the mirror going, I am enough. Woo. Yeah. I love you. Yeah. And all of this kind of stuff. But I tell you what, it has worked. Um, you know, I shower power. It. Shower power. Yeah. So I've got them stuck on the side of my shower and when I'm there, I'm I'm saying them over and over and over again. And the things that I'm saying, using the RAS and all that kind of stuff, it's all starting to come true. That is absolutely amazing. I love your the way that you approach life. It's so good. We need more of you in the world. Thank you. It has been so wonderful to talk to you. <sighs> the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.